0: So the scripture for today is from Esther, chapter 4, verses 6 through 17, and is found on page 349 of the Pew Bible. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Haytek went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to go say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Well done. See what Steve Chase started? He goes with an iPad mini. She brings up an iPad to read scripture. Technology. Excellent. Excellent. Um, if you've not been with us as we've uh, been in, the, in the, are in the middle of this study of Esther, let me uh, give you just a quick kind of snapshot of where we are, what's going on. This story takes place 475 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. It takes place, as you heard, in Susa, which is modern-day Iran. It's one of the four great capitals of the great Persian Empire, one of the four capitals of that empire. And to give you a little historical context, 100 years earlier, the remaining part of the nation of Israel had fallen, and the Jews who survived were taken into exile, into Babylon. Fifty years after that event, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and the Jews were actually allowed to return home. But some Jews, like Esther and Mordecai, have chosen to stay where they are. And as we come into this story, that's where we find them in Susa, and we also have been introduced to King Xerxes. King Xerxes, because he's the king of the Persian Empire, is the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he is a man who suddenly changes Esther's life. He forcibly conscript, conscripts, not a beauty contest as we've talked about, forcibly conscripts slavery, hundreds, several hundreds of young virgins versions, versions throughout his empire, and among them he chooses Esther to be his new queen. And what we also see about Xerxes beyond being powerful is again and again in the story so far he has proved himself to be reckless, extravagant we might say, and maybe if we are really mean, easily manipulated. Uh, Some examples from our story thus far, when someone saves his life, Esther's own uncle Mordecai, he forgets all about it. Uh, When, on the other hand, a prideful man seeks power, the other person we were introduced to last week, the villain of our story, Haman, Xerxes promotes him to his chief of staff and orders that everyone bow down to him. And last week, as the man who once saved the king's life, Mordecai, refuses to bow down, that is to worship Haman... The king carelessly gives absolute authority to Haman to plot his revenge. With the king's own seal of approval, Haman passes a law that decrees the death of not just Mordecai, but the annihilation of every single Jew in the Persian Empire. Haman wastes no time in getting the word out about this terrible decree. The royal secretaries write it out in the language of every tongue in the empire. It's posted in every province, far and wide, this declaration that on the 13th day of the 12th month of Xerxes' reign as king, genocide would not only become permissible, it would become the law of the land. Jews everywhere are left with 11 to 12 months to think about their death sentence to live in growing fear of their judgment day. No doubt, we would imagine that the thought crossed the minds of some to leave. But then again, where would they go? The reach of the Persian Empire, again, if you could picture a map, extended from Ethiopia to India. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. There was only time to wait and to mourn. As we come to chapter 4 this morning. That's exactly what we find Mordecai doing. When he hears the news about the decree, when he sees it posted, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and goes out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. He is a man who is mourning as if there was a death, and he's mourning because it is the death sentence for all of his people. His pilgrimage, his pilgrimage of mourning ends at the city gate. The city gate is not an accidental place that he ends up at. The city gate, back in the time in which this story was written, was the center of town. It was the place where commerce took place. It was the marketplace. It was also the place where justice was served. It's functioned as the marketplace and the courtroom at once. Him ending up there is intentional. But he ends up there and cannot go past the gate, even though he is one of the king's men. He would not go past the gate go on to palace grounds because he's in sackcloth and ashes. He's not going to go past the gate. He can't, even if he did go into the harem where his niece, Esther, is because he's a man. And so he waits. He waits to be noticed. He waits for an audience with his niece, the queen, Esther. This has been the protocol we've seen in the story so far. In the past, he's talked to Esther through her people, now, prior to the scripture that Stacy read to us this morning in chapter 4, we're also told something else: that Esther, meanwhile, seems to be oblivious to all that's happened. Apparently, Esther's pretty has a pretty sheltered life inside the palace because she seems to have no idea about this newly passed law, the drop-dead date, any of it. But as you heard Stacy read, her life in that ivory tower suddenly gets interrupted as her maids and her eunuchs have reported to her about Mordecai's sackcloth and ashes and his behavior. Esther doesn't know what's going on, but she's about to enter into a defining moment for her life. Hmm. Defining moments. We all have them. We all have those moments in which events Persons, circumstances converge in such a way that we perceive our whole life is about to turn. This conversation is going to shape the rest of my life. This news affects me in a way that's different, in a way that's unlike anyone else. That's what it was like when Esther got a message from her uncle Mordecai. And it's moments like these, defining moments, that we're going to wrestle with this morning as we continue on through the story of Esther, as we continue on looking at God's providence in the story of Esther. And again, if you haven't been with us, let me give you the definition we've been using to understand this very difficult concept of providence. When we speak of the providence of God, we're talking about God continually being at work behind the scenes in the midst of the decisions and choices that we and those around us make. We make authentic choices about our lives. We make authentic choices in our world every day. We face (laughs) the consequences of those decisions, our own personal decisions, but also the choices of those made around us. Those consequences matter. They're real. We experience them. They have impact. They leave a mark for good or ill. But in a way that we cannot fully understand or explain, the Bible again and again assures us that the Lord's will is still done. His ultimate plans, his ultimate purposes, his ultimate promises are fulfilled. The Lord is constantly working in, through, and can we just say it out loud, despite the things that we do or don't do. And the truth of this, and really it's a grace, the grace of this, it's not just something that the scriptures tell us to believe. As we've seen so far in the story of Esther and allowed it to almost interpret our own lives, it's not just the Bible that proclaims this. There's evidence of God's handiwork all around us if we have eyes to see. Seeing the Lord's fingerprints and footprints, as we talked about last week, starts with recognizing that many of the things happening in our lives are more than just a coincidence. On the one hand, everything Doesn't always happen for a reason. We talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. We often preach that within the church as Christians. And that is not scriptural. It is not gospel. It is a false gospel. It is a misunderstanding of scripture. Everything doesn't always happen for a reason when it comes to God. There are lots of things that we do. Lots of things that happen to us that happened because of us, which are not what the Lord would have wanted. The brokenness in our lives, the brokenness in our communities, the brokenness between nations, the continuation of sin, the glorification of evil, these are not God's desires for our world. Everything doesn't always happen for a reason, but God always works out his reasons through everything. It is a subtle distinction I give you, but it is a significant one. Part of understanding God's providence is realizing that the Lord is regularly calling us, nudging us, guiding us, and reforming us. Sometimes the hiccups, sometimes the disruptions, sometimes the detours in our lives are not just random or by chance. Sometimes the things that happen in our lives, the unexpected, yes, even the unwanted, Are opportunities to be part of the Lord's work behind the scenes. How we engage, how we ignore such moments has an immeasurable influence on who we believe we are, how we understand our relationship with this God to work, and what we understand the shape of our destiny to be. And that brings us to the next piece of the puzzle. How do we understand, how do we recognize rather than miss the defining moments of our lives? As we continue on with Esther, let's glean some wisdom as we walk through her defining moment. Esther hears that Mordecai is weeping profusely and sitting by the city gate. She hears that he's in sackcloth and ashes and we're told that it greatly distresses her. So she sends clothes for him to put on instead of the sackcloth. But Mordecai refuses the offer. I don't want you to miss the subtlety of what's going on here. Picture it. Esther's uncle is acting like a person in great mourning. And he's grieving of all places in the most public of areas, the city gate. And what does Esther do? Does she ask any questions? Does she initially try to find out what's wrong? Nope. She just sends her Uncle Morty some new duds. Some really nice clothes so he can clean himself up. We don't know why Esther doesn't ask any questions at this point. That's one of the things I've told you about this book: is that the author does not give us insight into what the 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 people in the story are thinking or doing. We have to interpret that ourselves. So we don't know why Esther doesn't ask any more questions at this point. But I want to suggest that initially she's trying to ignore the problem through a donation of clothes. After all, up till now in the story, Esther has been fairly passive. She's worked the system. She's hidden her identity. She's won favor through her good look and charms. She's played by the rules of the empire to get where she is, and she seems pretty content to stay under the radar. And again, we don't know, and the text would suggest that she doesn't know what's going on, but I'm going to say it's kind of hard to believe she doesn't know what's going on. I mean, she is, after all, the queen. It's a bit of a stretch that she hasn't heard about this new law, when at the end of the last chapter, at the end of chapter 3, Forget the whole empire, just the town she lives in, we're told, was bewildered by this new law. It's not hard to imagine, I think, that her uncle's behavior isn't the exception throughout the empire. In fact, it's the rule that the word is probably getting out, and other Jews are parading the streets in sackcloth and ashes throughout the various provinces. Maybe Esther didn't know what was going on. But, beloved, then again, maybe she didn't want to know. Esther's been trying to pretend she's a pagan. She's consciously or unconsciously ignored a long string of coincidences in her life. But divine providence comes knocking on her door. And as divine providence is knocking on her door, Esther seems to be trying to take, once again, the path of least resistance. But through Mordecai, the Lord just keeps dialing her number. Mordecai refuses the clothes. He refuses the clothes, and Esther, you heard it, is forced to send Hathach, the king's eunuch who's been assigned to her, to find out what's going on. And we're told Mordecai gave all the details to Hathach. He tells what happened to him. He tells about his refusal to bow down to Haman, Haman's manipulation of the king, including the exact amount of money that Haman offered to pay the royal treasury in order to execute his revenge, 375 tons of silver. He informs Esther through her eunuch what was going to happen to all of the Jews, providing a copy of the death sentence that had been sent around so that Esther can read it for herself. Mordecai, did you catch this? It's real subtle. Mordecai even outs Esther. Mordecai even outs Esther, revealing her secret of being a Jew. As through Hatchich, her eunuch, Mordecai urges her to go into the king's presence, watch it, to plead for him for her people. You don't think Hatchet said her people? Her people? First thing I want us to see as we reach this cross work, crossroads of providence and human responsibility is that sometimes, sometimes as people, we can wonder if we'll miss the defining moments of our lives. Sometimes we wonder. Am, is it, am I going to miss it? Am I, am I not going to see it or notice it or recognize it? And what I want to say right off the bat, right here in Esther, what we see, the first thing we see is that Esther's story demonstrates when it's God who's calling, when divine providence and human responsibility are intersecting, you want to know how you know it's God? The Lord has no problem hitting redial until we pick up the phone. You sit there and you say, I might miss it. Maybe I won't know. Let me tell you something about our God. Our God has no problem continuing to call back, continuing to knock on that door. Esther tries to avoid God's call through Mordecai to no avail. And I'm telling you, you're not going to miss a divine appointment in your life. If God has a divine appointment set aside for you, you're not going to miss it. Because it'll keep popping up. It won't go away. It will plague you. It will haunt you. It will not stop. So hear this. You won't miss that divine appointment from the standpoint of knowing about it. You may, we may choose to ignore it, but we will not miss it. Thanks to the grace of God. The grace of God that is about God's relentlessness. Relentlessness. Some of us oftentimes don't like how relentless God is, but trust me, it's grace. We will not say we did not know. We will and can say we chose to not pick up the phone, to not answer. Esther, however, does. She receives Mordecai's message, she hears and understands the looming danger. But from her vantage point, you heard it, from her vantage point, there's a big problem with her uncle's plan. So she sends Hathich out to Mordecai again. She sends him out again, and did you hear what basically she says through Mordecai? She's basically telling her uncle, hey, hey, uncle, great plan, but by the way, what you're asking me is suicide in and of itself. The king, we're told, hasn't summoned, that means he hasn't talked with his queen in 30 days. And the royal law is clear. Esther spells it out, just in case her uncle's forgotten it, that anyone who approaches the king without being summoned by him is put to death. Period. End of story. Right away. Gone. Done. Unless the king holds out his scepter. And the king hasn't talked to Esther in 30 days. His wife, his queen. What do you want me to do? Mordecai's response to Esther addresses another aspect of these defining moments in our lives when it comes to the Lord. I hope we were listening carefully as Mordecai reminded Esther. He reminds her first that, hey, hey, being a part of the royal court is no guarantee of exemption or deliverance. Just because you're in the palace, Esther, doesn't mean that you're safe. Do you think you're going to be the only Jew in the kingdom who's not going to die? And he goes on to say, Esther you know you're not in the royal palace by accident. You do recognize that this is more than just a coincidence. You do see that perhaps the very reason you are where you are is for such a time as this. For such a time as this, the most quoted verse from this book. We love this verse. You say to Esther, people may not know the story, but they know that line. For such a time as this, And it's an awesome verse. It's a powerful verse, a powerful question that Mordecai puts to Esther. It's a rallying cry for assuming responsibility and taking action in the midst of divine providence. But caution, if this is all we remember from the book of Esther, if this is the only scripture that we think is important, we are radically going to misunderstand and misinterpret this story. We'll miss, if this is all that we think Esther is about, a very significant insight from this story that I've passed over, even as I've told you what Mordecai says to Esther. I don't even know if you recognize it. And to point that out to you, let me again show you why this is important. Sometimes when we talk about defining moments, sometimes we tell ourselves, sometimes we're even led to believe that the fate of the world rests on our shoulders. The fate of the world rests on the decisions we make whether to act or not. If we don't act, if we don't do something, then all hope is lost. It will all fall apart. We get this a lot in church. And if I, have your, as your pastor, I have ever preached this to you, I confess and repent of it right now. You better get up. You better do something. The Lord's depending on you. You, better, you know what? The kingdom's at stake. You better, you better, you better. The world is coming apart. You better rise up. This has often become the rallying cry for revival in the church. And yet, and yet, what this ultimately says, if you stop and think about it, is that a defining moment, in other words, means it's all about us. But if you pay attention to Mordecai, if you pay attention to what Mordecai communicates to Esther, that's not what the scriptures say. Did you catch it? In the midst of the two things I shared with you, don't think that you're, gonna, you know, you're exempt from this and you might be for such a time as this. But in the middle of that, very important, Mordecai tells Esther quite plainly, what's at stake does not rest exclusively on her shoulders. If Esther chooses not to get involved, if Esther decides to remain silent, her inaction will not prevent the Lord's deliverance from coming from another source. Mordecai has faith that the Lord will rescue his people somehow, that he will bring salvation to them another way. Beloved, Mordecai communicates to Esther, and by extension to us, the inevitability of divine providence along with the invitation to participate. Sometimes we act. Sometimes we're led to believe that the rest of the world hinges on the defining moments of our lives. But the truth we glean from Esther is this. Even if we don't answer God's call, the rest of the world will not be left hanging. God isn't calling us to save the world. Please hear that. God isn't calling you or me or us to save the world. That's what he does. You and I, in other words are not the heroes of this story. Esther is not the hero of this story. We love to think of ourselves as the hero. We are burdened, many of us, by the idea that we have to be the hero. Some of us puff up our chest because we like to think of ourselves as the hero. We are not the hero of this story. There is only one Messiah, and his name is Jesus Christ. If we don't get this, we fall right back into the very thing that drove us to Jesus in the first place. If we buy into this, then we are in essence saying we can save ourselves. And the reason why we're here in the first place is at some point we understood, we recognized, we cannot save ourselves. So what does this mean? What this means, and I think this is an encouragement, is that a defining moment when it comes to God is about the Lord inviting us to participate in his plans, in his purposes to save the world. It's not a burden as much as it is an opportunity. It's not a burden, something that has to haunt us or we have to feel the weight of as much as it is an opportunity. And here's the kicker. If we ignore or reject it, it's ultimately our loss more than anyone else's. Hear that. If we reject it or ignore it, it's ultimately our loss more than anyone else's. Esther is facing an identity crisis. Did you know that Esther, by the way, is not her Hebrew name? Esther is her Persian name. Esther is her Persian name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. And Esther has been playing the part of a pagan. But now she has to decide who she really is. And Mordecai is reminding Esther of her true identity. She's being reminded of her true identity by the guy who told her a to lie in the first place. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. you got to point that out. To go back to those triangles, covenant and kingdom, to tie this together for you, this is a moment where Esther is beckoned to live out of covenant, to live out of her identity to know who she is, and out of that identity, to be obedient, to be dependent upon the Lord. And what does Esther do? What does Esther do at this decisive, defining moment of her life? Don't miss it. Don't don't underplay it. She stops denying. She stops ignoring. She stops making excuses. She stops running away. The triangles go in the right direction. Esther resolves that she will embrace her responsibility. She'll take the calculated risk and appeal to the king on behalf of her people. She recognizes that what she must do involves disclosing her true identity as a Jew. Esther takes stock of the reality of the situation, and she realizes if she doesn't live into her true identity, she's already dead. And this is where you really need to understand this idea of covenant, because I'm here to tell you there's no way around it. There's no middle ground, black and white, this simple. If we don't live into our identity, our identity as children of God, if that is not the primary beginning and last place where our identity comes from, we're living as though we're already dead. You're dead already. Esther embraces her true identity because regardless of what's going to happen, if she doesn't, she's already dead. And I believe that's why she says, very, very simple but these profound words, if I perish, I perish. One last thing this morning, also important, as we wrestle with divine providence and human responsibility. First, you know, how do I know if it's God? Trust me, you'll know. You'll know. Second, it's all up to me, man. That's a lot of responsibility. I don't know if I can, it's not all up to you. You're getting an opportunity to participate. No one's asking you to be the Messiah. No one's asking you to save the world. You're being given an opportunity to participate. You're being given an opportunity to be involved. That's how awesome our God is. Crazy. Our God goes, I can cover this, but I'm inviting you to be a part of it. Because through it, that's how you're going to get to know me better. You're going to understand this kingdom better. Okay. But then that leads us to, well, what do we do? And for many of us, if we go, okay, I'm not going to miss it, man. I'm going to be, like, hypersensitive. Any, if, if it's God, I'm going to be. And, and you know what? It's not to but, but the minute God taps me on the shoulder, I'm going to go.
0: I'm going to go.
1: And I want you to see in this story that Esther, when she makes that realization that she is being called, doesn't just go and call for an audience with the king. Esther realizes that she needs more than her own strength or wisdom, so she tells Mordecai to gather all the other Jews in Susa and have them fast with her for a full three days and three nights. I told you before, one of the challenges about this book is God is never explicitly mentioned. There's not a real explicit mention of faith, but it's implied, as I've tried to show you throughout. Here is one of those moments. While the word pray is never mentioned in this story, I'm telling you we can safely assume that prayer is implied here. Because in the Bible, fasting is more than just an extreme diet. Fasting is intimately connected with making a request to God. The principle is that the importance of the request causes the individual or community to be so concerned, so focused on their spiritual condition, that they move physical necessities, they move physical distractions into the background. So when it says fasting here, I think it's pretty obvious that Esther's asking everyone she knows to fast And pray. Again, the point of all this is that Esther's response here is more than just an impulsive reaction. Esther is able to take advantage of her defining moment, in other words, because she falls back on the devotional habits of her people. She's become convinced that she must do what she can to aid her people, but Esther doesn't move forward blindly, recklessly, or impulsively. She relies on God's help and protection. She intentionally and thoughtfully commits to fasting and prayer, and out of that, her plan, the Lord's plan, comes. I want to come back around to this because this is really easy for you to miss. Beloved, answering God's call in our lives is more than a reaction that we have. It's more than an immediate response that we make, something that just happens. Too many of us, not just literally, but metaphorically, are sitting in the pews. I believe in Jesus. Man, if God calls my number, I'll go. Yeah, if God calls my number, I'm, I'm, I'm there. What you're failing to see, what we miss, is that's not how this works. It's not like we're all sitting on the bench, and all of a sudden, you know, it's been a long time, and you're kind of rusty, and God goes, number 99? Oh, that's me. It's me. It's me. What do I got to do? Okay, I'm there. Answering God's call is more than just a reaction that we have, an immediate response we make. It's more than something that just happens. How many of you remember the name Sully Sullenberger? Raise your hand if you remember that name. If you don't, Sully was the U.S. Airways pilot who a couple of years ago landed a disabled passenger jet in the Hudson River. He saved 155 lives. He safely crash-landed a plane into the Hudson River. I'm not a pilot, but I have a good friend who is, and I remember talking to him about this when it happened, and he said what we also heard in the news, that this this safely crash-landing a plane, saving all 155 lives on the Hudson River, is a task that required mind-boggling precision. And yet he did all of it in just a matter of minutes. If you remember this story, people, pilots, those were like, it's impossible can't happen. It's impossible. And that's why many people in hearing that, again, from people who were pilots and others, said, well, this is a modern-day miracle. Many of you may remember the story, may have told people, see, that's a miracle. That's God right there. That's a miracle. And on one level, I want to say amen. But on another level, I want to say that our definition of miracle is inadequate. We we have a tendency to think anything that's impossible, oh, it just must have been God. We're just kind of walking around, and God just does it, you know, just bam, does something. No involvement from us. I've just told you that God God's plan is, I want to do what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it, but I'm inviting you to participate. My, my, I could do it alone, but I've invited you to participate. And what's interesting is that while most people were calling it a miracle, the theologian N.T. Wright wrote a book called After You Believe. And he argued differently. Where people wanted to point to that and say, that was a miracle, N.T. Wright said, no, that's not a miracle, that's virtue. And what he meant is virtue in a Christian context. Virtue for a Christian means the intentional effort of seeking and growing in godliness. The transformation of our character, of becoming like Christ. He wrote, virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature, not first nature as though they happen naturally. Like an acquired taste, such choices and actions, which started off being practiced with difficulty, ended up being second nature. Beloved, many of us think we prayed the prayer, we're sitting in the pew waiting until either God calls us home or he picks our number. And if we truly understand this journey we're on, this journey that we're on is all about every day being prepared, trained up. That's why we use the word discipleship. Discipleship is about preparing oneself to answer God's call even before that call comes. Sanctification, another churchy word we use, is about having our character changed by Jesus. It's about having our spiritual muscle memory rewired so that we can recognize and respond to the Lord's prompting. Our habits and our practices matter deeply. Many of us say, well, I prayed the prayer, but nothing's changed about my habits or my practices. Then you are missing out on the very life of salvation that you've been invited into. Jesus did not come, and I've said it a million times, but it bears repeating again to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. He did not give you something so you could go, well, I lived a good life, okay, time to pull that out, I'm in. Jesus's intention in saving your life was to change your life now. To prepare you for the work that he's called each one of us to do. And that preparation isn't that moment that your number gets called, it's before. Your number gets called. You talk to that pilot, talk to Sully, he would say, People were like, How did you do that? And Sully said, And this is what NT Wright points back to. He said, Look, it wasn't like I was on the plane and I, went, I happened to get lucky and find the manual at just the right time in those few minutes and find the right page and go, Oh, I get this. He goes, This is what we do. I practiced this over and over again for exactly when this was going to happen. That's why we practice. And Jesus intends, he's working you out, he's exercising you, rewiring you, not so that all of a sudden when your number gets called, you dust yourself off and go, what do I do? But that it becomes second nature. Our orientation to Jesus matters long before God's call actually comes into our lives. We are being trained for the defining moments of our lives before they come upon us so that our response for the kingdom of God becomes instinctive. Second nature. Second nature. Each defining moment of our lives to live into that relationship, the covenant, is an ability to live out our responsibility to the kingdom, and they build upon each other. If you have not changed, if you don't feel different, if you're not experiencing God, I don't know how many ways I could have to say this, from whether you were born in a Christian home or you came to Christ, and it's been one year, five years, 1550, you are missing the opportunities that are in front of you. Another way to say this is that if we think of it this way, each day is a defining moment of our lives. Each day we face life-changing decisions. On the one hand, between the temptation to cheat, to lie, to steal, to deny, to hide, to run away, and on the other side, from the opportunity to stand alone, to tell the truth, to stick, to speak up, to give away, to stand up. And such decisions are an integral part of who we are becoming, as are the decisions of others, relationships and situations that are oftentimes outside of our control. We don't control who our family is. We don't always control the people who are our bosses and our teachers and our mentors. And yet these affect and shape who we are as well. How does that happen? Again, back to the mystery of providence, in the midst of all that is the greater Reality, the greater truth, that the most significant, defining moments of our lives are the ones where God encounters us. And any time that God encounters us, it's a life-changing experience. That is profoundly simple, but many of us don't get that. I can have an encounter with one of you, and, you know, we engaged, and, okay, it's not always a life-changing encounter. But do you understand the very nature of who God is? If you encounter the living God, it changes your life. Do you understand that? There is no, well, that was cool. I didn't really get anything out of that. So by the way, when you come to church and you say, I didn't get fed, that's not God's problem. That's your problem. If you have an encounter with the living God, it's not like God's like, well, that's all I got today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't have anything else. Anytime you encounter the living God, it's a life-changing experience. If your life's not changing, maybe you're not encountering the living God. And when you encounter the living God, you know why it's life-changing? Because every time we encounter the living God, it's an echo of the greatest moments of defining our reality. It's echoes of the incarnation of a God who comes into the flesh to be with us. It's echoes of the cross of a God who says, I give you everything. I take it all for you. It's echoes of the God who says, tomb. What tomb? Death. What death? It's the echoes of a God who says, you're hiding behind doors, throwing dice, trying to figure out what to do next. Let me give you a little energy boost. Holy Spirit, become a body, not a dying body, a living one. Go change the world. It's the echoes of a God who says, hey, I'm going to my father's house to prepare some rooms, but don't don't kid yourself, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Beloved, these moments when we encounter God are life-changing because these are the moments that reorient us. These are the moments that reconcile, redeem, and resurrect our lives. These are the moments that provide security and stability to our world. But these moments are moments we have to respond to. We have to engage them. We have to participate. Are we looking for those defining moments in our lives? Are you looking for those defining moments in your life? Or are we avoiding them? Are we avoiding them? Esther embraces her defining moment, her opportunity, and as we're going to witness through the end of this story, God will wield incredible authority and power through her. And beloved, that's not just Esther's story. Thanks to our identity in Christ, our covenant with the Father, we too can have unimaginable influence, not accidental power, not coincidental authority, unimaginable influence in what God is purposing to do in this world. We are invited to answer God's call to participate in the defining moment of the kingdom, and these are the opportunities upon which our lives turn. For Moses, it was the moment that he encountered a burning bush that wouldn't burn. For Jacob, it was the moment at midnight to pre-dawn when he wrestled with God. For the woman at the well, it was when she met Jesus at noon and he told her everything about her life. For the woman who was hemorrhaging, it was the moment she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. For Zacchaeus, it was the moment that Jesus showed up and said, Zacchaeus, get out of that tree and have me over to your house for dinner. For one boy, it was the moment when Jesus was given by him a couple of loaves and a few fish. For a couple of guys, it was the moment when they lifted Paul over the Damascus wall and saved his life. And for a eunuch named Hathach, who we've totally ignored throughout this whole chapter, by the way, for a eunuch named Hathich, if Esther's too lofty still for you, for a eunuch named Hathich, it was the moment that he became the telephone for a conversation. You do realize that Esther and Mordecai never talk face-to-face through this entire chapter, right? The defining moment for Hathich, a eunuch named Hathich, was the moment that he became a telephone for a conversation that changed a queen's life and changed the fate of an entire nation of people. What about you, what about me, what about us? What are the defining moments of our life? Think about yourself, I mean it. Think about yourself today, this week. Think about what you uniquely have, and yes, think about what you uniquely lack. And then think about the context you're in. Think about where you are. Think about all the ways you feel powerless. And you know as well as I do, we are really good at talking about how powerless we are. We don't perceive we're powerful, we perceive we're powerless. And I'm telling you to think about all the ways that you believe you're powerless. Think about the number of times you've said, you know what Huntington Beach needs? You know what Grace Lutheran Church needs? You know what this school, this company, this place needs? You know what my family needs? You know what this world needs? Fill in any time you've said those words. Think about the number of times you've thought there was nothing or no one who could do anything about it. Think about all those things and then pray. Pray and listen for the voice of the Lord. Pray and let God speak to you, point you back to all those parts of your story that make you unique especially those events that felt like setbacks at the time but are now vital to who you are. Let God allow you to see, to whisper in your ear about the position you're in now, not about obsessing what you're not, what you don't have, but where you are now and seeing the unique opportunity you have. And then, with that voice, from that perspective, look at the massive challenges that face us. Listen to the call of God coming through the Mordecai in your life. If you've got a divine appointment, I guarantee you, you're going to have a Mordecai in your life. Listen to God speak through the Mordecai in your life saying, Hey, Chris, perhaps you've been given these skills and experiences. Perhaps you've been given these privileges. And yes, even these things that you've lost. So that at just this very moment, you could do what no one else could do. You could be what no one else could be. God made you just the way you are because he wanted someone just like you. Maybe all this happened. Maybe you came to be here for such a time as this. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if you pay attention, if you pick up the phone, it's the kind of conversation upon which your life can turn. It's the kind of opportunity in which you can experience the grace of the Father, the faith and love of Christ, and the hope of the Holy Spirit in a way that is uniquely and distinctly for you. It's a defining moment. And it begins long before it hits you in the face, long before it smacks you in the gut, long before it whispers in your ear or taps on your shoulder. It's a defining moment that begins with a question. And the question isn't, is God in control of this world? The question is, is God in control of my life? Are you listening? Amen.